0: Let me say a prayer for us, and we'll jump into this. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us together. Thanks for a good vacation and rest for us. Thank you for so many faithful people that just want to study your word together. I pray you'd open our hearts and our minds to see, if nothing else, how absolutely awesome you are and just how absolutely amazing it is that the God of this universe cares about each and every one of us individually. You are an awesome God, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as always, the uh, okay. As always, we have technical difficulties right out of the bat. (laughs) All right, questions during class. Just text the questions there. We'll answer as many as we can. The nature of this study is a lot of history, and then we'll also today get into the future and try to connect those together. So, if you have questions, that's great. You know, we like we like questions a lot. We're basically spending four weeks, this is week two of four, in the book of Daniel, and I wanted to pick some of the apocalyptic visions, some of the prophetic visions of Daniel, and just talk about those. We don't do that a lot, and I think prophecy is an interesting genre, and it also is always forward pointing to Christ. So I like talking about Jesus Christ, and so that's what we're going to do for these four lessons is look at some of the visions. Some of them contain some pretty weird beasts, and we'll talk about why that is, by the way. Don't let me forget to tell you why are beasts in these visions when we do this. Well, let's do a little bit of a recap, and the reason I want to do this, I don't want to bore you, but I want to go kind of quickly through the visions we talked about last time because the vision we're going to talk about in this lesson really kind of homes in on a portion of the one from last time. Well, if you remember, this is a map of ancient world in about 605 BC, so 605 years before the time of Christ, the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar their king, has become ascendant, very dominant. Think of them as Iraqis. Back in the day, I've mentioned this to you before, but Saddam Hussein, for example, saw himself rebuilding a Babylonian Empire from you know what his ancestors had done. So, Think of them as basically coming out of what we call today Iraq, but basically dominant in that part of the world. Well, as they rolled into Israel, which there's called Judah or the land of Canaan, I'll just use the modern name, they they rolled into Israel and Israel said, we'll pay you tribute. That's great. That's what they're all about. There's no sense destroying a place when you can just get them to pay you instead. So they said, fine. Well, Israelites were late on a few payments and so they... Nebuchadnezzar comes rolling in and said, I'm going to take some hostages uh, to make sure that you're not late on those payments anymore, right? So, young man Daniel was one of those young men that were taken back to Babylon and they were trained to be put into service as basically civil servants running, helping to run the Babylonian Empire. They went through like a three year training program, learned the Babylonian gods, they were given new names. Babylonian names. They were learn, learned the Babylonian writing and mathematics and that sort of thing. And Daniel was one of the best and the brightest. And if you remember, last time, we, we talked about two visions. The first one is in Daniel chapter 2, and it's the vision of the statue. That vision happened. You know it. We know when it happened because the text tells us what year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar it happened in. It was in 603 B.C. He, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about this statue and Daniel was able to interpret it. Fifty years later, in 553 B.C., so 603 to 553, 50 years later, Daniel has a dream about these four beasts. But both of these visions are essentially about the same prophecy. The same idea that God is is giving them. And so to summarize, and again, I'll just summarize because this is what we talked a lot about last time, but the statue, the four different metals in the statue, and then the four different beasts correspond to... Daniel didn't know this. He just knows that there are four kingdoms coming. We now know what kingdoms they were and when they were ascendant. Daniel didn't know all of this, but he knew there were four kingdoms coming. First was Babylon. Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was the king in 605, and a guy named Belshazzar or Belshazzar was the king, the last king uh, at the end of that. The second vision happened in 553 when the last king, Belshazzar, was king. But they both are talking about these kingdoms. So Babylon, followed by the Persian Empire, defeated the Babylonians, followed by the Greek empire of Alexander the Great, defeated the Persians, and then finally followed by the Roman empire. So in 605 BC, God is giving these visions to forecast how world events are going to go up to the time of Jesus Christ. So that's what that vision is basically about, is about these four kingdoms. I want to show you this time maybe a little different way of looking at it, because the vision we're going to talk about this time is going to home in on this. So, statue in Daniel chapter 2, the beasts in Daniel chapter 7. Those two visions are 50 years apart, but they're about the same thing. So, here's a timeline. You get Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all prophesying and active around 600 B.C., which hopefully that's helpful to you. Those are three of the four major prophets. The other one is Isaiah. Isaiah was prophesying about 700 B.C., roughly hundred years before these guys, but those three were contemporaries. Daniel, of course, up in Babylon, Ezekiel and Jeremiah back in Jerusalem, but they're all getting visions from God about what he is going to do with Israel. So the Babylonian empire is ascendant at that time, and in fact, Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC, not long after Daniel is taken away, will finally come and destroy the temple and destroy Jerusalem. The second kingdom, just like the prophecy said, was the Persian. Persians uh, defeated the Babylonians. We'll talk a little bit more about that. 539 to 331, so for over 200 years, the Persian empire, think Iranians. Persians are ethnically related, basically. I know this is a long distance in time, to Iran. So they ruled for a little over 200 years. And in fact, they were very tolerant rulers. And it's during that time and you read about this, by the way, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Those are Old Testament books written in that time frame where the Persian king lets the Jews go back and start to try to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And they do. It's not as grand as Solomon's temple, but it's, it's rebuilt. The Persians, in turn, just like the prophecy says, are defeated by the Greeks, Alexander the Great and the Greek army, 331 I put 63 B.C. because in this part of the world, 63 B.C. is when the Romans come rolling into Israel. So you'll see some different dates, but I want to talk about it from an Israel-centric point of view. In that time period is a guy named Antiochus we're going to talk a lot about because this prophecy, this vision we're about to see, homes in on that time period. And there's a particular reason it homes in on that time period. Finally, the Greeks are ultimately uh, overcome by Rome. And it's Rome that's in power when Jesus is born. And finally, in 70 AD, because of continued rebellions after Jesus is resurrected and the churches begins to grow, the Jews in Jerusalem rebel, and the Romans come and destroy the temple, and it's still destroyed. In other words, the temple hasn't been rebuilt uh, since 70 AD. So that was the vision That Daniel had in 605 BC, 600 years before the time of Christ. So these are, uh, I thought putting it in chronological order might help a little bit. In the vision that we're going to talk about in this lesson, we're going to go to Daniel chapter 8. And by the way, the chapters in Daniel aren't chronological, but the visions I'm going to give you, I've put them in chronological order. So we had a vision in 603 of the statue, 553. Of the four beasts. And then tonight is going to happen in 550. So just a few years later, we're going to get this vision and it's going to home in on a couple of these. So let's dive in and look at the text. This is Daniel chapter 8, the first nine verses. Let me read this to you. It's going to seem weird because it's apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is a genre or a type of literature, a type of prophecy that uses a lot of symbols, you'll see, and I'll tell you what, we'll decode some of this and tell you what some of the symbols are, but Revelation, for example, is apocalyptic literature. Very symbolic, but very uh, serious, very accurate, but we have to understand the symbols a little bit. Well, Daniel, these pieces of Daniel are apocalyptic prophecy. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, that's 550 BC, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, just about 200 miles east of Babylon, in the province of Elam. And in the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up and there in front of me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but it grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south, and no animal could stand against him and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. Now, as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west. He crossed the whole earth without touching the ground, meaning came very fast. And so, without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground, stomped on him. No one could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east, and toward the beautiful land. Think Israel. Okay, perfectly sensible, right? In fact, we could probably stop here because that's pretty self-explanatory. Well, that's really typical of apocalyptic literature. He's saying something very specific, but we kind of need to decode it. How are we going to decode it? Good news. Sometimes prophecy gets explained in the Bible. So Daniel is actually going to get an explanation. When he finished this, It says, the text goes on, I'm just going to tell you this part. text goes on, and he said, when I saw this vision, I really was struggling to understand this. But then I heard a voice that said, Gabriel, think Gabriel the angel, explain to this man what this vision means. And so Daniel says, hallelujah, Gabriel comes over, Daniel's kind of scared, Gabriel says, don't worry, picks him up and says, let me explain this vision to you. Let's see what Gabriel said. Our story picks up in Daniel 8, verse 19. So Gabriel said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. In other words, this vision is about a time of judgment, a time of wrath. Because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the king of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, those four, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people, think Israelites here. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision. It concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. So let's talk about this. Helpful that it begins to interpret this for us, Helpful, we live when we live, because we can look back at history, and this is going to fall together so clearly, it's amazing. First of all, apocalyptic literature. Beasts are used quite a bit, and sometimes they have significance. And one of the significances here is, for example, if you remember the former vision, the third animal was a four-headed leopard, and it represented the Greeks, Alexander the Great and the Greeks. Here, you have four horns coming out of the goat that represent the same four kingdoms that come out of Alexander the Great. So that beast, uh, the way the beast is portrayed, represents that. The animals themselves usually represent power or strength or agility. Uh, For example, Alexander the Great's conquest was very quick. The guy only lived from 356 to 323. He conquered the whole Persian Empire in three years. I mean, he's really fast. So how do they represent that? Leopard, fast. A goat that travels through the whole world without ever touching the ground. The point is, it's just trying to tell you this this king, whoever he was, is very sudden. The horns typically represent strength or power. Horns almost always represent a ruler or a kingdom or both. Rulers in those days were identified with their kingdoms. So are we talking about Alexander the Great or the Greek Empire? Yes, talking about both those together. So horns usually represent strength, and they represent kings or kingdoms. And so you'll see a lot of horns. You see the one big horn, you'll see the other four growing up. In the vision we did last week, that last beast, Rome, had a lot of horns, a lot of power, a lot of strength. So as you kind of see some of those things, you realize, okay, we're not really talking about animals here. We're not even talking about strange animals. It's just using the language of animals to send us a coded message about certain political events that are gonna happen. Uh, The other thing is that uh, it's really common to see mediation in prophecy. In other words, if it's going to be explained, that's one of the things angels do. Angels serve God but they also serve us and that God sends them on on, uh, missions like this a lot. So Gabriel was sent to explain this to Daniel so that he could tell us. So basically, here's a picture of that. You've got the ram on one side with two horns, not the same length. That's significant. We'll talk about that in a second. And then you have the goat that defeats it with one big horn. Four horns come out of that and out of them, one little horn comes up. So what I wanna do now is go back in history, and since we can now look backwards, Daniel's looking forward, not understanding all of this, we get to look backward and piece it together, and that's what I wanna do. So let's decode this by looking back a little bit at history. So first, this is the Persian Empire. We are now in about 539 BC. Daniel doesn't know this yet but the Persians are gonna defeat the Babylonians. And the Persians are that ram with two horns. What are the two horns? Well, the two horns are interesting because the Persian empire was really two kingdoms. You have Persia and you have Media. And the Persians basically overcame a guy named Cyrus in 550, in other words, about the time Daniel is having this vision. Cyrus the Persian is conquering the Medes, M-E-D-E-S, and consolidating this empire. So as Daniel's having the vision, God is orchestrating events so that it's already in motion. And so this is the two horns. You have the Median Empire, you have the Persian Empire. Persian Empire is the longer horn that came up later. In other words, it came a little later, but it was stronger, wasn't it? Because it won. And so you see the ram representing this Medo-Persian empire. So Daniel, again, he doesn't know this, but this, as you look through the history, you go, wow, that's exactly right. You have two kingdoms, one greater than the other. So Persian empire happening right about this very time. Next comes a guy named Alexander. So from 539 B.C., This uh, ram tramples anybody he wants to trample. I mean, all kinds of interesting stuff happens between 539, 331, 200 years of the Persian empire. What did Daniel's prophecy say? He said that ram went to the west and the north and the south and he trampled anybody he wanted. And that's true. Persians were rolling over country after country. In fact, this is when you have uh, the 300, remember the movie? When the Persian kings go after Greece and have the big battles and all that, that's all happening in this time period. And so the Persian empire is really strong. So that ram just rolling over everybody, that's what they did, that was a huge empire. But kinda out of the blue, 331 BC, Alexander comes out of Greece, kinda out of nowhere, with an army, he's the ram, and quickly, shatters the Persian empire. In three years, he literally overthrows that huge empire. I mean, it's one of the more brilliant military conquests of all time. People still study Alexander's military techniques. So he lived from 356 to 323, but for our story, 334 to 331, that's how long it took him to overcome the Persian empire. So Alexander conquers, the ram conquers. He's got one big horn, you've got one powerful leader. And he makes a huge empire. But Alexander doesn't live very long. And so when Alexander dies, he has a huge kingdom, but there's nobody to really run it. And so four of his generals divvy the kingdom up. So let's look at that. This is Alexander's kingdom... So again, you orient yourself. You see uh, Israel there. This is the area around the Mediterranean. But his generals carve it up. There's no one strong enough. Once that one horn is broken, meaning Alexander dies, you have four kings come up. Let me show you these kings. This is all a matter of history. This is happening in 323 uh, B.C. Seleucus, Ptolemy... Antigonus and Cassander. Those four generals divvied up with their various army. They all served Alexander, but once he was gone, it's every man for himself. And so they break it into four, just like the prophecy says. When the one horn is broken, the big horn, four smaller ones, none of them have the same power. They're not as good at generals as Alexander, but they're basically gonna rule one way or another from the time Alexander dies, till the time the Romans show up for over 200 years. So they're very powerful influences and they dominate this part of the world for about 200 years. So let me fast forward to the end of that time or near the end of that time. And they fight each other. So instead of four kingdoms, they eventually become two. One is called Seleucid Empire after Seleucus and the other is called the Ptolemaic empire after Ptolemy. They've defeated the others over this 200 year period. And basically when we get down to where I wanna talk about the key part of this vision, those four horns have now kind of turned into these two kingdoms. You know more about these kingdoms than you think you do because I wanna talk about 170 BC. So we're way down the line here, but the Ptolemies are interesting because the most famous ruler in the Ptolemaic Empire, which included Egypt, was Cleopatra. In other words, from the time of Alexander the Great, the Egyptian pharaohs weren't Egyptian, they were Greeks. In other words, Ptolemy, Ptolemy was a Greek guy, and so then his kid and his kid and his kid and his kid, they all ruled Egypt as pharaohs or as kings of Egypt. Well, Cleopatra, was a Ptolemy. She's the, the last in the lineage of those Greek rulers. And of course, she ends up having this ill-fated affair with uh, Julius Caesar, and then Mark Antony, and it's just dying to be made a reality TV show. Anyway, so she has a, has a bitter end, but that's kind of, that's when the Romans take over, and it's going to be the end of that. But we want to talk about it right before that happens. You still have these two Greek empires together. And so we've seen the big horn, Alexander. We've seen the four, his four generals. But what was that one little horn, remember, that came up out of the other four and had a lot to say about him, that he was going to consider himself superior. He was going to be a master of deceit. He was going to cause great suffering for God's people. I want to tell you who that guy is. He ends up being the last ruler of that Seleucid Empire. He's the last ruler of that line in that Seleucid Empire. You notice in this picture that the one place you don't want to be in this picture is, I mean, basically of all the places you could be, this is not where you want to be. And guess who lives there? Yes, that's Israel. In fact, that map could be replaced with a map of today, and you'd go, same situation. Israel caught with a bunch of neighbors that are hostile. So here's what you have happening. I don't know if you guys had brothers and sisters growing up, but if you were the peacemaker in your family, you ever tried to get between your brother and sister in the middle of a fight, you usually get the tar beat out of you because they're, you know, they're both throwing things. That's exactly what happened to Israel. You got the Ptolemies in the south You've got the Seleucids, in other words, that dynasty in the north, and they're fighting each other. And they're back and forth, but guess who's right in the middle? Israel. And so Israel really gets a lot of battles and all during this time frame. But in 170 BC, a really powerful ruler, the little horn, pops up out of that Seleucid empire, And his name is Antiochus, great Greek name. King Antiochus IV rules from 175 to 164 BC. He is the ruler of that northern part and he wins. He beats the Ptolemies. He takes over Egypt as well. And he thinks, I am on top of the world. I'm the new Alexander. And he really thinks a lot of himself. And so, King Antiochus is, historically looking back, he is that little horn that grows up. So out of those four kingdoms, that's the last guy standing. And he is going to do some of the things that Daniel prophesied when it comes to Israel. Here's a coin. This is just a, a front and back of a coin that he minted. And there's a picture, obviously, of King Antiochus. I think they took it off his Facebook page. But it says, King Antiochus the very image of God that's written in Greek on the right side there, the bearer of victory. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes basically in Greek means the very manifestation of God. Now, that's interesting. Who does that sound like? I mean, in in the real world. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus is God become flesh. Well, he thought he was God become flesh not the god of the Bible, but the god Zeus, right? So he thinks he's the, uh, literally a god. He expected his people in his empire not just to serve him, not just to be good citizens, they needed to worship him. So this little horn that came up is going to do a lot of damage, and you're going to see some interesting connections, but this is all a matter of history. So King Antiochus uh, pops up, and he begins to make changes. Now, I'm going to read to you out of a book that's not in the Bible. I want to read to you out of the book of 1 Maccabees. For, for those of you Catholics, who are like, "Hey, I recognize that's in my Bible." Yes, it's not in the Protestant Bible. It's uh, not inspired, in, in my view, anyway. I mean, I'm, in my conviction, actually, it's not an inspired book, but it's a book of history, and it was written about this time, and it was written about this guy and what he did to the Jews, and you're going to see that being a fulfillment of what Daniel was told so many hundreds of years earlier was going to happen by that little horn. But listen to this as a matter of history. This is uh, writing uh, 1 Maccabees. So here's what happened in 167 BC during this guy's reign. It said this, when Antiochus saw that his kingdom was established, He began to become determined to be king of the land of Egypt too. In other words, going to go defeat the Ptolemies. He did. And after he subdued Egypt, he returned and he went up against Israel and came to Jerusalem with a strong army. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary of the temple. He took the golden altar. He took the lampstand. He took the table. He took the cups the bowls, the golden censers, the crowns. He took all the silver and all the gold. He took all of them back to his own land. He shed much blood and spoke with great arrogance. Well, this is being written in 167 BC. That's what Daniel prophesied back in 600 BC. Let's go on. The king then, Antiochus, wrote to his whole kingdom that everyone should be one people and they should all give up their customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Many of the Israelites even adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols. They profaned the Sabbath, and the king sent letters all through Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, and he directed them to follow customs that they were taught not to follow. He told them no more sacrifices to God, no more drink offerings. You can't observe the Sabbath. You can't observed the Passover. He defiled the sanctuary and the priest. That's true. He went into the temple of God and set up a temple to Zeus instead. You couldn't do anything worse to the Jews. He built altars and sacred precincts and shrines for the idols. He made them sacrifice pigs and other unclean animals and not circumcise their sons. That's a sign of the that's one of the big commandments. Is that's the sign that you're part of the covenant? He says, basically, he said, anyone found possessing a book of the covenant, a Bible, would be killed, condemned to death. According to the decree, they put to death any woman who had her son circumcised. But many in Israel still stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to worship Antiochus. So the scene is set for a huge battle, a huge oppression against the Jews. That's exactly what the vision said. The little horn's gonna come up. He's a master of deceit. He's gonna cause a great amount of suffering to God's people. And that's exactly what he did. So one day he sent his messengers all through Israel. This is in 167 BC. So we can see how this plays out because we get to look back at it. And he went to a little town called Modin, and there was a priest living there, a guy named Mattathias. So the representative of of King Antiochus comes in, he sets up a shrine, and he says, everybody line up, everybody's gonna worship Antiochus here. And so some of the Israelites kind of line up, but he turns to Mattathias, he said, you're a priest, you're one of the elders of the village, you are well thought of, you go first, and we won't have any trouble with anybody else. First Maccabees records Mattathias' answer. But Mattathias answered and said in a loud voice, even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to obey his command, every one of them abandoning the religion of their ancestors, I and my sons and my brothers will continue to live by the covenant of the Lord. Far be it from us to depart from the law and the ordinances of God We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the right or to the left. And just to make sure that the messenger understood, he took his sword, kills the messenger of the king. He and his boys flee into the mountains. Well, one of his boys is a guy named Judas. Judas was like the star fullback on the football team. He is like a brute of a guy. He's a great warrior and he's got a nickname, you know. His nickname is the Hammer. Well, that's Maccabee in Hebrew. So Judas Maccabee, Judas the Hammer. He becomes the leader of the rebellion against Antiochus and this entire uh, empire. And so the story of the Maccabees is the story of this rebellion saying, We won't accept this. Now, or if you remember, in Daniel's prophecy, he said the little horn is going to become powerful, but he's going to be destroyed. And he's going to be destroyed by God. And that's true, because there is no way in the world that a bunch of ragtag Israelites should be able to overcome the Seleucid Empire. I mean, they're outnumbered so badly, it's worse than Star Wars. I mean, Death Star, you know, versus... Luke Skywalker. I mean, it's worse than that. There is no way. God's hand clearly is in this, just like Daniel prophesied. Well, we make the story short, and then we'll pause for some questions. In three years, from 167 to 164, they succeed, and they kick the Greeks out. They go rolling into Jerusalem in 164. Man, Judas gets in there. They clean out the temple. They destroy the altars of Zeus. And by the way, this isn't part of our story, but it's really kind of interesting. So they get in there and they say, we're gonna rededicate this place. And so they take the oil that's been, think like holy water, okay? So this is oil that's made the right way and they're gonna light the menorah and they're gonna keep it lit and they're gonna rededicate it. But here's the problem, only have one bottle of oil. That'll go for about a day. Well, unfortunately, it's gonna take them eight days to get some more oil. So they light it anyway, and according to tradition, this is not in your Bible, according to tradition, that one bottle lasts for eight days until they can make some more. It's a miracle. That's what Hanukkah is, by the way. The festival of Hanukkah, not in your Bible, is a remembrance of that eight days of light. So you're going to see a lot of lights in Hanukkah. That's where it comes from. Is 164 B.C., when the Jews reclaimed the temple and cleansed it and believed God made a miracle by making the light shine for eight days when it, there was no way that it could. But for our perspective, God's hand was clearly in this little horn being destroyed. And so from our point of view, I hope you appreciate the fact that Daniel saw it from that side. We see it from this side. But it's amazing to see how the history lines up. So I want to draw some conclusions from that. But before we do that, let's see what questions you have.
1: Um. Is Maccabees reliable for us to use to interpret the Bible, to give us uh, answers to other things that we see in the Bible? And if so, why is it not included?
0: Yeah, good question. Is Maccabees uh, reliable for interpreting the Bible? And if so, why is it not included in the Bible? Let me give you a couple different answers. First of all, it is not reliable for interpreting the Bible. It, however, as a matter of history, insofar as it's accurate history, can be very corroborating to the Bible. So when I read this, what I want you to understand is, I'm not telling you that's explaining the Bible, I'm just saying that as a historical document is historical verification, just like that coin is historical verification, just like the history of the Babylonians and everything we know about Alexander the Great, all of those things things as a matter of history incredibly looking back match up with a vision that was 600 years earlier so it's a corroborate i would use a different word it can be used to corroborate the bible but not explain it the reason it's not in the bible is it's not inspired by the holy spirit these are people like you and me sitting down and writing hey let me tell you what happened like writing american history is it reliable well it can be and certainly in many respects it is is it inspired by god well no is still useful, but it's not on the par of Scripture. So, great question.
1: The account of Antiochus going into the temple appears to almost mirror the Antichrist during the tribulation in Revelation.
0: Is we it am- are getting to that. Okay. Great question.
1: Okay, well, a couple of other questions um, along those lines. The prophecies in Daniel, um, how do they compare to those of Nostradamus?
0: Good question. You know, having uh, the question was, how do the prophecies of Daniel compare to those of Nostradamus? Having read Nostradamus's prophecies, weird, weird guy. Okay, I just that's an editorial comment. He's a weird guy. Okay, well, obviously, he lived in a totally different time. Nostradamus, and I'm not trying to trash Nostradamus, but basically, he made a ton of predictions that didn't come true. What you hear about are a couple of things he said, but you don't really hear what he said when you read them. They're so cryptic, it's like, God, it's like reading my horoscope. You know, I I can interpret that any way I wanted to. In other words, Nostradamus clearly didn't have the spirit of God. He was wrong way more than he was right. And even when he was right, it was a little sketchy. So he was human. Daniel's prophecy kind of in, I hope you're kind of getting the vision. There are two things I want you to get out of this lesson. The first one is simply this. What God told him 600 B.C., we stand here looking back and we can literally read history like a road map and it just lines up perfectly. So that's one of the key things. So Daniel's inspired by God. Nostradamus, I don't know, Mexican food, something. I don't know what gave him those visions.
1: When Daniel receives his visions, how do they come to him? Is he asleep and they come in the form of a dream or is he awake?
0: Yeah, as you read the text, and I haven't read all the text, but I'd urge you to read through Daniel. It's really fascinating. As you read through that, it seems like much of the time it occurs to him um, in a in a dream-like sense, but it apparently is more real to him even than a dream. He knows he's having a vision. He doesn't think he's just dreaming. You know, he's having like stress dreams. You know, i got a final exam tomorrow, you know. So it's apparently more vivid, but it does appear, just from reading the text, to be Kind of like a dream, but it appears to be much more vivid than that. Okay? All right, well, let's go on because I want to move to the second thing. First point, getting to look back at the history, watching the prophecy, you can literally map it out. By the way, where does this prophecy seem to be going? Where does the history end? Jesus Christ. In other words, well, we'll get to that in a minute. You've got to ask yourself, why is God doing this? I mean, why is he giving Daniel these visions? I mean, is it just to show off like, hey, I know what's going to happen and you don't? You know, no. I mean, what is the point of this? Well, one way to kind of figure out what the point of it is, is to sort of see where it's going. So that's our first lesson. Biblical prophecy is often fulfilled more than once. Its purpose is not to impress, but to teach. In other words, God has a purpose in giving these visions and... Here's another difference between this and Nostradamus. I mean, this is cooler than you think. So basically, he's not doing this just to say, hey, by the way, I know what's going to happen because I'm God. He's actually doing it to teach us something. What is he trying to teach us? God's always playing out his redemptive plan. He's got a plan ever since the fall in the garden to bring us back to him. You notice it's not a coincidence that these four kingdoms end with Rome dominating the world, creating peace, and here comes the Messiah born into that time, at the perfect time, at the perfect place. So this prophecy is going somewhere. So that's kind of a key idea. All of God's prophecies are not just to impress us, they're all here to teach us something. The fact that this prophecy ends where it does is he's pointing to Jesus. The other thing is, biblical prophecy isn't like Nostradamus, like, I think this is going to happen. It actually is cooler than that. It says, this is going to happen in history, Daniel, but he's saying to us, by the way, isn't that cool? Guess what? That's just a forecast of something else that's going to happen. In other words, biblical prophecy comes true more than once. It maps out perfectly with history, but it's also gonna map out really well with the book of Revelation and what's gonna happen in the end. It's pretty cool to predict the future. It's really cool to predict the future twice with the same prediction. Does that make sense? That's how cool God is. So second lesson, the past is the key to decoding the future. God works like this a lot. In fact, I'm gonna argue that the whole history of Israel while it all really happened and they really were God's chosen people, was kind of like a dress rehearsal so that you and I would understand what God was going to do with Jesus. It's like he does all these hundreds of years of history to say, hey, isn't that cool? We go, yeah, good. Now that you know that, I'm gonna show you what I really wanted to teach you. In other words, Israel is an archetype. It's a precursor to what God's gonna do through Jesus Christ for all people. This prophecy of Daniel, of talking about this little horn and the damage he's going to undo, how he's going to be overcome by God's power. He said, wow, isn't that interesting history? Well, yeah, actually, it's fascinating history. He goes, oh, yeah, watch this. That's just a little dress rehearsal for what I'm going to do bigger in the future. Let me give you one little example of that. Revelation chapter 13. I want you to just start looking for similarities here uh, between these two things. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. We've got beasts again, right? So let me decode this one a little bit. This beast, you're going to get a description of him in just a second. We're using animals again to represent, their attributes are going to represent kingdoms, political power. The sea is a sign of political power. You're going to see a beast come out of the land, which is a sign of spiritual power, but I don't want to talk about him tonight. I just want to talk about this beast, the Antichrist. He's coming out of the sea, which means this is a kingdom. This is a ruler. This is military political power. So I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Just the same thing Daniel's seeing. He had ten horns and seven heads and ten crowns on his horns. And each head had a blasphemous name. Now, you do not need to be a biblical scholar to realize this is a bad guy, right? You also don't need to be a biblical scholar to realize hey, if horns mean strength, 10 horns has got to be whoa, powerful, right? This is a very powerful figure and a very evil figure. The beast I saw, now listen to how this beast is is, uh, described, resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. Does that sound familiar to anybody? what was the what were the four animals in Daniel's vision, right? There was a, lo- a bear and a lion and uh, a leopard, and then there was this Roman thing. But you get these three. So what's it saying about this beast? He is actually got all of the power of all of those kingdoms. He's not a leopard, he's a leopard, and he's a lion, and he's a bear. In other words, What I showed you historically, and as powerful as they were, this dude, the Antichrist, is going to be like that on steroids. Makes sense, doesn't it? Ties into the Daniel image. He said, remember what Daniel was telling you? Well, I'm going to tell you even more. If Daniel was taking you to high school, I'm going to take you to college, right? So, resembled a leopard, bear, lion. The dragon, that's Satan, gave the beast his power. In other words, it's satanic. That was true in Daniel's time. All of these, uh, we didn't read all these parts, but basically Satan is behind all these kingdoms oppressing God's people. Well, here's the dragon giving power to this beast. his throne, and gave him great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound. We won't go into that now, but had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. It's going to be a world power. Men worshiped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast. Who does that sound like? Antiochus, Epiphanes, everybody worship me. That little horn, that great king who caused so much trouble for God's people, the Jews, now think big-time Antichrist, also is going to demand worship, and he's also going to pour out huge suffering on God's people during the tribulation. And they worship the beast and said, Who is like the beast? Who could possibly make war against him? Who that sound like? Antiochus Epiphanes, little Mattathias saying, Hey, I don't care about you guys, but I am not going to worship Antiochus. And they think, Well, you'll be dead soon. No, he's not. They're like, who can make war against Antiochus? And yet they do. So what you see with Antiochus Epiphanes is he is a little, I mean, not historically little, historically he's a big guy, but he's a small example of something else that's going to happen. That whole prophecy of Daniel is true historically and teaching us a lesson, and it's also foreshadowing what's going to be true at the end of the world. This guy's a bigger version of Antiochus Epiphanes. He does exactly what Antiochus did. He says he's going to be a god. He wants people to worship him. He's stamping out any worship of God. He's going to kill God's people if he can. As you continue to read Revelation, that's exactly what the Antichrist does. And so this vision that Daniel has comes true historically and foreshadows the end, something bigger that's going to happen in the end. Does that make sense? It's really interesting looking at this prophecy when you realize that God's got layer upon layer going on. Well, let me leave you with this thought out of this. I mean, on one sense, I hope that if you get nothing else out of this, you go, God is even cooler than I thought he was. God is even more awesome than I realized. As I look back at history, see the prophecy, see it come true, then I look forward and go, oh my goodness, I've seen this movie Look what God is doing. He had this all planned out all the way back there. That's good. I would love for you to get that. On a more personal level, think about this for a minute. The God who can do that over the whole span of time, the God who holds kingdoms and power all in the palm of his hand, all these kings think they're doing what they want to do, and they are, and they're doing evil, and yet and yet, when you step back, They all march to the tune of the Almighty. God is the architect of history, not men. That God, who's that awesome, cared enough about you to send his son to redeem you from the trouble that's going to happen. Does that make sense? That is mind-blowing to me. The God who's architecting history... And there's a really pretty little passage in Revelation. We need to study Revelation again pretty soon. Pretty little passage where all this bad stuff's about to happen and God goes, hey, time out. Everything frees. I'm going to go mark my people before anything else happens from the Antichrist. God stops history to care about us. So if the God of the universe, who can architect kingdoms and power and redemption through the centuries cares enough about you, don't you think he can architect our lives too? I mean, if Antiochus Epiphanes and the worst he could do, if the Antichrist and the worst he's going to do do not bother God, I don't think your and my problems the rest of this week are too much for him. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. I'm just saying the God who can be trusted with all of history can be trusted with your and my future. And I hope that inspires a little faith. Hopefully that makes us trust God even more with our future. If he can be trusted with the future of the world, he can be trusted with my future too. Next time, one of my favorite visions. Can you read the handwriting on the wall? I'm going to tell you where that came from. I'm going to show you this interesting vision that Daniel has that probably has more implications than you would think. So that's what we're going to talk about next time. All right, Handwriting on the wall. See you then.